Welcome back to week two of 2017. Uh, and I saw a tweet the other day regarding uh, things that if you have social media, you know is going on. Uh, there might be something going on with immigrants at some point in our world. And uh, given the current immigration orders in the United States, someone issued this tweet and the tweet said, maybe these immigrants should just pretend to be Christians like Republican congressmen do. And this is a funny tweet because it gets at the nominal Christianity behind much of our politicians. Um, but the point of this tweet uh, and the bite of this tweet was actually to highlight the perception of Christianity as a power and a privilege. And among <coughs> aspiring intellectuals in our country, um, it's become in vogue to create straw men Christianity, which is primarily about governmental prowess and conservative politics. And people even point to the protection or privilege, whatever you want to call it, that American churches have. And they say it's only because um, of this uneducated, narrow-minded, yet large voting base that evangelical Christianity has any sort of voice in America. Otherwise, it's outdated, antiquated, and dying. In fact, what they would say even further is if it wasn't for Emperor Constantine in the late or early 4th century converting to Christianity, Unless it had that institutionalized protection, they would say the Christian church wouldn't even be around. But to equate the movement of Jesus to an American dream or simply to Constantine's verdict is to be wildly unaware of what the center or the scope of Christianity is. Because history shows, if we step back and look at history, that Christianity doesn't need the power of politics or the promise of wealth. The gospel doesn't need uh, the gospel doesn't need cultural cooperation or national identity, and that's because Christians have no country. They have a cross, and they have a king. And in the book of 1 Peter, we are examining the intersection of Christ and culture, specifically for us in the life of the college student. And we're, we're turning this point in the book where Peter is looking at what is your life? What is your life hidden in? What are your motivations? What is your comfort? What is your power? And tonight, Peter's going to answer those questions for us, but he's going to do so by looking at a hard topic. He's going to look at this. This is what we're going to see tonight. For the Christian, opposition is expected, but so is salvation. For the Christian, opposition is expected, but so is salvation. And we're really going to spend the next two to three weeks looking at suffering in the remainder of this book. And as we talked about last week, Christians will be opposed by culture. But what marks true Christianity is the ability for you to endure this opposition to the end. Jesus says this in Mark 13, 13. He says, and you, speaking to his disciples, you'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And so what Peter is fighting for here, even in your life, in your circumstance, with everything going on, Peter is fighting for an endurance of, uh, or a mindset of endurance in the face of suffering. So I want to look at this text tonight, but this text, in, given just our station in life and in the world and in history, we must have some humility when we look at this text tonight. So let's pray and ask God to be kind to us um, before we get rolling. Lord, as we uh, examine texts on suffering, we often don't know how to pray because we don't know how to view it, because we're unfamiliar with how we can experience it, uh, because it is uh, 
depicted in movies and perhaps on the news in some distant faraway country. But God, this scripture is what you've given us as that which is true and good for all men. Jesus says in speaking of his words, he says, my words will endure forever. The whole Bible is good for us in every station in life, in every language, in every land, and in every circumstance. So I pray that we do not write off the words of Peter tonight, but in a way which only your spirit can do, you make something which seems foreign to us, innate to us. You make something which is distant to us, same near to us. You make something that seems uh, passive to us, and you make it ominous for us. And we ask this because we need it. And you are good to answer our prayers. We pray this in your name. Amen. So, uh, my wife and I, one of the books we read while we were engaged, the best book we read while we were engaged, was a book called What to Expect, Redeeming the Realities of Marriage. And what this book did, it was written by a pastor and author named Paul Tripp, and it began to deprogram our minds because unbeknown to us, we had learned culturally or through some other means, we'd been taught to expect a certain reality of what marriage looked like. And as this book began to pull on those threads of what that reality is, it, it showed that if left unchecked, it would have led to great disappointment and heartache inside of our marriage as we held each other to standards that none of us could have kept. But what Peter is going to write today is the prequel to that book. He's writing today, what did you expect? Redeeming the realities of Christianity. And the reality that Peter is going to promote for us, which is so different than what we often think of in our own minds, there should be some shock value in the text we're looking at tonight. And we begin this by looking at 1 Peter 4, verse 1. Peter says this, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So the heart of the gospel, a thing I want you guys to hear when you come to GCF, when you go to Sovereign Hope, when you're meeting with a GCF leader, if you're, when you're going to Bible study, when you're sharing it with someone, the heart of the gospel is this, that Jesus died for your sins and he rose again on the third day. Jesus suffered and took the punishment for your sins. He took the wrath that you incurred. He took the death that you worked for. And he took it all because of the joy set before him to restore our relationship back with God. And the application of Christ on the cross is to look and believe in this. To believe that Christ died for your sins. To see that you are a sinner. To look at Jesus and to live. But what Peter does in talking about the suffering of Christ on the cross is he pushes past just the gospel. He pushes past just the belief that Jesus died for our sin, and he actually takes and applies it one step further. And as I was writing this sermon, <clears throat> I, was, I was convicted. And I'm still convicted, and it's still awkward. And the reason why I'm convicted is the exact reason that Peter's writing this passage. And I had taken a break um, from writing, and I walked into my kitchen. I have a nice home office now in our new house. And uh, so I walked into the kitchen, and I made some hipster coffee in a beaker. Uh, I looked in the fridge aimlessly. I peeked out the window. I checked Twitter while my coffee was working. And then it hit me. Here I was, casually living, having spent hours looking at this text, now sitting down to write a sermon on it. And I had not the slightest burden about 1 Peter 4, verse 1. 
To me, this idea of, uh, since therefore Christ suffered, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. This was Peter's one-liner to get into the, the last verse we're going to look at, verse 6, where he talks about living by the Spirit. It was Peter's opening line, his catch, but it wasn't really the substance. But, but do you understand what it is that Peter just said? Do you understand the weight of what it is that I am to communicate to American college students who claim to believe, or at least seeking to believe, what the cross represents in their life? What Peter says is Christ suffered in his body and you too in Jesus will suffer in your bodies because of Jesus Christ. Arm yourself with that same expectation. Arm yourself with that same way of thinking. And he's not talking about Paul. When Paul talks about suffering, he often talks about suffering in terms of a spiritual or sinful affliction. Paul talks about suffering from sinful habits. But that's not what Peter's talking about. Peter's not talking about suffering from filling your time with too much church activities and not being able to play the video games you want or go to the movies you want. Peter's not suffering financially as you seek to support missionaries and churches on a college budget. Peter here is talking about suffering in the flesh, in the physical body via persecution, insults, hardships, isolation, and banishment. Something which we as Americans don't even have a category to understand. And this is so weird for me. And I realized this all day as I sat thinking on this text. Every other text that I want to preach to you guys, in my sermon study, I do one thing. I look at the text, I memorize the text, and then I do a devotion on the text. And I don't use any third, th second person pronouns. I don't talk about you guys. I talk about me. I need to apply this text before I preach it. But I haven't applied this text. I haven't suffered in the flesh. I haven't been persecuted on account of what it is I believe to a point of opposition coming at me. And yet this text is here for my good. As I sit as a middle-class white man in America in a four-bedroom home with two kids and a beautiful wife. You see, in modern America, we suffer from our lack of suffering and this inhibits our ability to understand the weight of Peter's words. You see, we only hear this veiled uh, academic lie equating Christianity to global comfort of world superpowers. But do you know the almost universal experience and narrative of those who claim to be Christian? In 30 AD, Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, historically recorded, was a man who was killed, murdered on a cross, and they can't find his body. Some say he rose again, some say he was stolen, but his believers claim that Jesus did what he said he was gonna do. He was gonna rise from the dead and ascend to the right hand of his father. Five years later, in 35 AD, a man named Stephen was murdered in the streets by having rocks dumped on him as he stood in an abandoned quarry for believing in Jesus Christ. By 64 AD, Emperor Nero launches broad-scale persecution against Christians in the Roman Empire, and his dinners in his courtyard were typified by the burning corpses of Christians who had been dipped in oil. By the end of the first century, the Emperor Domitian had established Christianity as the official enemy of the Roman state, the most powerful emperor at the time. By the beginning of the third century, Emperor Severus made it illegal to convert to Christianity or to Judaism. 
As Christianity grew despite these oppressive circumstances, it faced increasing persecution in the Middle East, in Southeast Asia, in India, in China, and in Eastern Africa. Fast forward even to today. Researchers by the end of 2014 looked at the known data from the world and concluded that the year 2014 was the bloodiest year in the history of the church in terms of people murdered for their faith. That record lasted until the end of 2015 when the number of martyrs and people killed for believing in Jesus rose from the past records. In fact, unofficial reports say that there will be more Christians imprisoned in forced labor camps in North Korea on Sunday than there will be in people in attendance at the Super Bowl. The fact is that since the time Jesus walked on the earth, it's estimated that over 70 million men, women, and children through lions, swords, gas chambers, and gun galleries have been murdered because of their faith in Jesus Christ. That's more than World War II, and that's over 300 times more than the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki combined. And yet we assume that persecution is something foreign to us. Arm yourself with this way of thinking. And while the Bible doesn't tell us to seek out persecution, it makes it astoundingly clear that the expectation we will have as citizens of God's kingdom while living in the world that we live in right now is this. You will suffer. Anything outside of that is the exception that does not prove the rule. But far from Peter wanting to write a sob story, about Christians who can claim the victim role, Jesus does what Peter says and he turns suffering on its head because of Jesus and his work on the cross. You see, part of our American fear of suffering is not only that we're unfamiliar with it, but we're also unfamiliar with it and that means we don't extract from the cross the whole counsel of God's good grace which were pinned to those planks. There are aspects and powers of the crucifixion and in that gospel that without persecution is never extracted or squeezed out of those who have believed in Jesus Christ. And Peter shows us the power of this type of Christianity here in our first point, the freedom of suffering. And if you remember last week, Peter talked about those who suffer. It says, when you are afflicted, be ready to give, to provide a reason for the hope that is in you to anyone who asks. When you suffer, it presents a unique opportunity to bless those outside of you as you share with them the hope for which you're suffering. But Peter turns the gaze back towards the Christian in today's text, and he talks about the benefit your suffering will have on you. What benefit to you? Not simply to the cause of Jesus, not simply to those you witness, but to yourself. What is the benefit of suffering? Look again at 1 Peter 4, 1 through 2. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of his time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Peter uses this awkward phrase, for the, whoever has suffered has ceased from sin. Now, it's not that people who have suffered have become this perfected holy being who no longer sin, but 
it does say something unique. There's a stunning point in what Peter is saying, which can't be lost on us today. And to get there, I want you to think about what is the biggest sin you could ever commit? The sin that is most offensive to God. The sin that you could sit here right day and say, that is damnable to God. That is worthy of eternal punishment and God's wrath. You see, in John 4, Jesus is talking to a woman who's gone to fetch water at a well. And Jesus knows because he actually tells the lady. And the lady goes and tells her friend, she says, this man said things about me that no one else knows. And Jesus knew she had a past history of sexual immorality. She's had three husbands and the man she lives with now isn't even her husband. But despite this grand sin that we would look at and say, this this is the spectacular sin of this woman. Look at what Jesus says to her regarding salvation in John 4, verses 10 through 15. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water that I will not be thirsty and have to come here to draw my own. See, here's Jesus, and he's going to share with her the gospel. Jesus wants to give her the water of salvation, and here's this woman with a much maligned, grandiose, sinful past, and Jesus didn't say to her, go back to your husband. Jesus didn't say to her, marry the man you're with. Jesus said to have a relationship with me, to have the water which leads to eternal life, to have water which will never run dry, believe in me. I am the water. You see, access to God isn't something which happens when we fix a sin of lesser weight. Reconciliation with God comes when we fix the chief sin of unbelief. You see, her her solution and her salvation wasn't to turn from adultery, but it was to turn from her unbelief. Unbelief is the sin which separates us from God and everything else are symptoms downstream of this event. They must change. They should change. They will change. But unless you change unbelief, we will stand forever outside of the grace of God. So taking this story now, if we fast forward to what Peter is saying in Peter chapter four, he's saying, if you are suffering for the Jesus that you believe in, for the hope that you have, you are no longer suffering because of your unbelief. You see, persecution, in a sense, Peter is telling us, it forces us to prioritize that which is right and good. You see, the good news of persecution is that when you are afflicted for what you believe in, you're no longer condemned for what you do not believe in. It is really hard to sin against God when you are simultaneously suffering for him. Suffering, in a sense, is a gift that forces us to prioritize the priorities of God and the grace of Jesus in our own life. And many modern theologies masquerade as Christian today and say that if you're really spiritual and if you're really Christian, your life will be easy. Your life will be healthy, wealthy, and wise. But this 
idolizing of comfort, of health, and prosperity is not only opposite what the Bible says we can expect, it's opposite of what our Savior himself endured on the cross. You see, persecution has a redemptive value because Jesus is Lord over all of our hardships. When we are persecuted for any reason, it affords us a unique opportunity to choose wholeheartedly to do something which pleases God, which automatically puts what displeases God behind us. It forces us to do what Peter called us to do last week in 1 Peter 3, verses 14 through 15. It says this, uh, I'm going to actually, yeah, 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. You see, when suffering comes into your life, it is forcing you to honor Christ over and above everything. Because your option is dishonor Christ. For those of you who have read the book Silence or the movie that just came out, the, the, the appeal of the Japanese authorities who are trying to persecute the Christians is this. Stomp on the face of Jesus or face torture. And in that moment, that persecution is a highway to avoiding sin. To choose to not stomp on that and treasure God automatically means that you are not sinning. You are choosing God. You are treasuring Christ. You are seeing the value. You are choosing to do what God has said and has called us to trust in that Jesus is our life and Jesus is our joy. And sin automatically becomes in our rearview mirror because there's no room for competing influences. And Peter says here that suffering is a great blessing doesn't mean it's easy, but it means you're no longer held to the whimsical changing passions of the human culture, but you're driven and guided by the ever constant and affirming will of God. But if we want to see this benefit well, we also need to have a right understanding of why it is we suffer. You see, this is Peter's second point tonight, the source of suffering. Why will the world oppose you? Why is it that here I stand, out of all the things a campus pastor could be talking about tonight, I choose to talk about how we're going to prepare to suffer. You see, Jesus says that they'll oppose us because they opposed him. But why did they oppose Jesus? Why did people hate Jesus? Look back at John chapter 3, where Jesus says this in verses 19 through 21. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And the people love darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So Jesus speaks of this light and this darkness here, and he's saying that people don't like light because it exposes us. People don't like light because the things we want to remain secret and hidden can no longer remain in the shadows. And remember, Peter, who's writing this book we're looking at, Peter was one of Jesus' closest disciples. He was probably standing right next to Jesus when Jesus spoke these words in John chapter 3. And we hear those words of Jesus almost word for word in what Peter says in 1 Peter 4, verses 3 through 4. Listen for the echo of Christ's words. 
With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, or excuse me, starting in verse three. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties. I always look for a time to say orgies at least once a day, so there it happened. Uh, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. So it's probably known at this point that I'm a coffee snob. And one of my lasting legacies at Sovereign Hope uh, Church will be the reformation of the free coffee area. And I have over uh, years of biding my time finally brought in high quality, locally roasted and handcrafted coffee beans brewed, timed, extracted, and consumed at the proper ratios of coffee to water. And for those of you who have been at Sovereign Hope, it's delicious. Yet, I have found there is a contingent at church who do not like my coffee. And as a pastor, I want to care for them well. I want to hear their complaints. I want to help them with it. But as a coffee snob, I want the ground to open up and consume them. I want them to be as far away from me. I never want to see their faces or hear their complaints again. And it's true in coffee, in entertainment, in politics, and in so many other areas, we forget how great it can be when people don't like and don't treasure what we like and we treasure because we take what their desire is and we see it as a condemnation on what our desire is. You see, it's interesting here. I, I was just at the gym before I came here. I was listening to a podcast in a recent study of millennials. It was talking about what makes Christians radical. It's this negative term that's now being attached to Christians. And they said, what is radical Christian behavior versus acceptable Christian behavior? Nine out of 10 millennials in this survey said that to, ha to oppose somebody's lifestyle is a radical view. to challenge, to oppose, to press up against the treasures they have in their own heart is radical. And you see, there will be opposition to the people of Jesus because we have gone apostate from the status quo. We have turned our backs on what the world says is God. Our affections redeemed at the cross will in our day be ridiculed on the street corner. And the simple shift of where we find our satisfaction makes us a foreign category to the world around us. When our whole life is not consumed with sex and sexuality, they, they literally cannot qualify our desires. They cannot understand our joy. When our security is not tied to the hoarding or spending of money, they don't understand our values. If we don't value that, what is it we value? When we make decisions based not on moments or eras, but on eternity, we become a threat to what they hold as central. And they need to eradicate us. This sounds extreme, but it's nothing new. The first two people born on earth, that's a trick question because Adam and Eve were made, and the first two people born were their sons, Cain and Abel. And one day the boys went to go make sacrifices to the Lord. And Cain, he was a farmer, and he knew the, knew the amount of toil it took to raise large, non-GMO produce. And it took effort and time and irrigation. <clears throat> and so when the day came for the sacrifice, he looked at his garden, 
He saw the big ones that were going to be at the good food store. He saw the trashy ones, which were going to be at Albertsons. And then he saw like Missoula Fresh Market ones in the middle. Ones that were like, they're good. They're not good food store, but we're not going to like name brand Albertsons. So he gets these vegetables and he goes and he takes them to God and he sacrifices them. His brother Abel is a tender of flocks. Abel went out and he surveyed his flock and he found the firstborn, the fattest, the strongest, the most valuable of all of his animals. And he took that and he offered it to the Lord. The next day, Cain calls Abel out into the field. The Bible says he rises up and he kills him. Why? Abel didn't strike Cain. Abel didn't ridicule Cain. Cain wasn't sentenced to death because Abel's offering was better. What happened was Cain couldn't handle the difference of Abel's worship. You see, it exposed a different philosophy of God first, which threatened everything Cain held as valuable in his life, and he couldn't bear to have that challenged. And the moment when you accept Christ as your Savior on the cross and you take up that salvation, your newfound affection, identity, and purpose puts you at odds with everything the world holds dear. But we do not fear as they fear. We do not panic as they panic because Peter says, for the time that has passed before you were in Christ, that sufficed for pursuing what the unbelievers pursued. You don't have to wonder if left to your own sin, if you would have figured it out because you already lived in sin and you didn't figure it out. No one gets merit badges for sinning longer. No one gets gold stars for figuring out sin in the 80th year and less demer- or more demerits for not figuring it out earlier in life. Sin is terminal. When we are born, we experience the futility of it. It doesn't get better. We can strive, we can yearn, we can be anxious, but we don't ever find what we're looking for. You've already lost the war. Do not doubt what God says to be joyful but trust that God ransomed you from that futile ways. You see, the joy of life and the salvation from meaninglessness can never come from the activity of man, the pleasure of a woman, or the joy of alcohol. It can only come from the completed work of Jesus on the cross. So when we take up that satisfaction and hope in the public sphere, we put ourselves in a position where we're exposing the frailty and futility of everyone around us, and no one likes that. But look at where Peter goes next. 1 Peter 4, 5 through 6. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. You see, our faith in Jesus puts us at odds with the world and the world casts a verdict. It doesn't sit by silently or passively. It declares to us what they think of us. And I call this the the ugly apologetic. Apologetics is the defense of what it is you believe and the world has an ugly one. To make a defense of what they do, spending time, pleasure, passions, and money to pursue what they think joy is, they say this, you think you're so right and holy, but you're not. Everyone knows you're sinful, and if you say you aren't, you aren't sinful, you're just a hypocrite. You're not perfect. You're still weak. 
You still put on your shoes the same way I do. You still live in this broken world. You still have to bear the burdens of cancer. You still have to suffer. You will still fail. You will still die. What makes your life different than my life? Ashes to ash, dust to dust. Live fast, leave a pretty corpse. This is Peter's final point tonight. The end of suffering. See, Peter says that men will offer judgment on how they think your life matches their perception of life. But it's God's judgment which matters. Culture tries to define what it means to find life, but God is the author of life. Culture likes to think it has all the power in the world, but there is a supreme court above the court of men which will judge the motives and end of everything. And you see, in this in the court of this world, you will never be given the verdict of successful, of prominent, of celebrated. And this is interesting because I've noticed something. And I'd like to see, um, I love church history. I love studying it. And I'd love to see if this is an influence that has ever been on any other culture. But there is in the Western church, this un, the Western unpersecuted church, and I think that's important, this unprecedented desire to be seen as cool, as culturally relevant. Man, there are eras and centuries of Christian history where they're desperate to just be seen as human. And not only do we want religious liberties and equal protection, we want to be seen as cool. I wrestle with it every year at orientation when you see all these Christian booths, what sets us apart? Well, we're the cool ones. I want to be the cool one. And I make fun of ones that are more cool than me. It's interesting to just look at the generic American church. We model our entertainment after what the world says is funny. We model our music after what the radio says is in. We model our worship services off of what the world says is acceptable. More often than not, we model our message after what the world says is palatable. But what Peter is telling us here is that authentic Christians are wasting their time and their breath if their main goal is to be seen as culturally irrelevant for the gospel is offensive to the lusts of this world. I pray that we at GCF in our evangelism, in our discipleship, in our inviting people to hear the gospel, in our inviting people to come to Bible study, in our sharing in those, those terrifying moments where we are not only letting someone know we're a Christian, but we're saying, I want you to know how you can be a Christian. In those moments, I want us to be winsome. I want us to be gracious. I want us to be soft-spoken. I want us to be real. And I want us to be bold. But my biggest fear is that we'll try to make ourselves cool by culture's standards. Because there is nothing more opposed to the status quo of our world than the gospel which shows how broken we are and how beautiful Jesus is. You see, God, if God's Supreme Court, or God's Supreme Court is the only verdict which matters, and we may die with the very same diseases other men die from. We will all die because our hearts will stop working and we'll go into a static state in the ground. But death is not culture's laugh, laugh at the Christian. It is the Christian's great door to their good God. Christians will win. Culture may mock us, but the cross encourages us. The world might find hope in this life, but the Christian finds confidence in the face of death. 
The rulers of this court might try to judge you as dead in this life, but the ruler of the Supreme Court has already judged you on the cross as living eternally. You see, we live in a time of relative peace. And this is where it's awkward. I don't know how to apply this text to you. But I hope that's your hope. We need to wrestle with the truth of Peter's words. Do you value the power of the cross in this tension we face? In this time of peace, are you preparing for war? Do you find your key acceptance in what Jesus did on the cross or in what social media says of you? Are you more concerned about what the God of the universe says or what culture says? Because though we may only experience verbal and cultural persecution at best in this world, we are protected from so much. There has never been a culture where there is so little at stake sharing the gospel with people and yet so little gospel sharing. But the witness of scripture and the testimony of history is that we're not far from sharp words turning into sharp swords. And in those days, will you have a faith which endures? In those days, will you see how Jesus has turned suffering on its head? Because the situations in this text might be foreign to us, but the salvation of it is near to us. It is here. It is the cross of Christ. May we put our minds to understand things that we cannot comprehend right now. May we put our hope in places where we don't think they will ever be threatened, but we labor to establish it there. Let us be prepared for the expectation when our salvation is more than exposed, but opposed. And let us be glad for we have a God who delivers us. 2 Peter 4.18 says this, May this be our hope tonight as we face sharing the gospel with those around us and living as a Christian on a liberal campus. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I need help with this text. We need help with this text. Sovereign hope needs help with this text. And make us aware that oftentimes the greatest help you'll give us in applying this text is bringing us circumstances where we have to believe it. May this text push a fear of suffering so far from our minds that we have no fear of an American culture that we have no fear of an Islamic state, that we have no fear of a Christian holocaust, that we have no fear of militant opponents, 
that we have no fear of the demands of dictators, the mouths of lions, or the edges of swords, but that we might with full confidence arm ourselves with the same that thinking that is in Christ, that those who have suffered in the flesh have ceased from sin, so as to spend the remainder of the time in their flesh no longer living for human desires, but living according to the will of God. Lord, we pray that that happens in this room in a way which I can't yet communicate because I am weak in it, but in a way which your Holy Spirit can convict us and empower us and change us and save those around us and convince us of the confidence we have in the face of these events. It is a trivial thing when given our circumstance to be worried of so little. But God, make us capable of much more. We love you, Lord. Pray us in your name. Amen.